Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays, and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we call the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. If you listened to last week's show with Evan Feigenbaum, which I recommend you do because he was just an outstanding guest, you'll know that I intend to do a few more shows on the topic of China's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I do intend to get back to the Thinking About Thinking About China series at some point and have some of those planned already, uh, as well as some episodes that have not much to do at all with politics or war or with other weighty and depressing matters. Uh, but for now, I think it's important to focus on this world-changing war and the role China plays, as I hope you'll agree. One of the issues foremost on my mind is how China's media has been talking about the invasion. For one thing, they don't call it an invasion, and that certainly tells you something. Uh, we can learn much, I think, from watching how state media covers it or doesn't, how social media is talking about it. Last week, Evan Feigenbaum talked about how China will likely be sanctions compliant in hopes of avoiding damage to its economic relationship with the U.S. and the EU, but it's already clear that in spite of its efforts, China is suffering serious reputational damage in the West, and the way that China's media, as well as some of you know the more vocal Chinese netizens, are talking about the war, well, well, frankly, that is not helping. China's state media, which is supposed to be at the vanguard of China's efforts to build soft power and tell China's story well, is working at cross-purposes to that mission, at least in the West. So, wouldn't it be great if there were an individual who I could invite onto the show who speaks and reads both Chinese and Russian, who has followed closely the ins and outs of the China-Russia relationship, is steeped in the study of China's media apparatus, and to top it all off is an authority on China's efforts to create soft power? Well, as luck would have it, I know someone who ticks every box there. Maria Repnikova is Assistant Professor of Global Communications at Georgia State University and a Wilson Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. She's the author of a great book that Jeremy and I interviewed her about way back in February 2018 called Media Politics in China, Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism. I highly recommend that book. And she's also got a brand new, very short book under the Cambridge Elements series called Chinese Soft Power. And there's another book in the works about Chinese soft power focusing on her research in Ethiopia specifically and, and Africa more broadly. So uh, just today on Friday, March 11th, while we're recording, she's got a piece out in The Atlantic co-written with Wendy Joe, who's one of her graduate students, called China's Russia Policy is About America, which I urge you to read right away. All this in one person. Can you believe it? It's enough to make a podcast host believe in miracles. Maria Repnikova, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you so much, Kaiser. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you back. I should also mention that Jeremy did a print interview with you, and listeners should definitely check that out on subchina.com. Maria, I know that everyone is anxious to hear about that piece in The Atlantic and about your take on the impact of China's Russia policy on global public opinion since the invasion on, on February 24th, and on all the media messaging that's coming out of China and the impact that that's having on Chinese soft power. I promise you, dear listeners, that we will get to all of that. But let's set the stage first and talk about your new book as a way of understanding China's soft power ambitions to begin with. So to start with, Joseph Nye, as probably everybody knows, at the Harvard Kennedy School, was the man who coined the phrase soft power. But he defined it rather narrowly, basically the power of attraction, not payments or coercion. Can you talk about that definition and, by contrast, what Beijing means when it talks about soft power? Yeah, thank you for that question. So Joseph Nye is indeed the godfather of soft power. So he's he coined the term, and you know he's been writing about this uh, in various new adaptations of his original you know article and book and so forth. But yeah, his term is primarily focused on values, culture, and foreign policy. That's what he defines as kind of the key resources of attraction. 
And his um, ideas are very much rooted in the U.S. context, you know, the American perspective. In particular, he coined the term in 1990. So this was at the very edge, you know, the end of Cold War, a collapse of the Soviet Union is just about to happen. So there's there's all these grand events that are happening in the world. But the end of the Cold War has motivated his writing because some historians were arguing at the time that the U.S. power overall is declining. Right. So Joseph Nye came in and said, well, I don't think so. We can actually gain a lot through soft power, which is the power of attraction, not only military power, but soft power is something that really distinguishes the U.S. Uh, from many other nations. Yeah. But you mentioned that this term is quite narrow, but at the same time, it's pretty broad, right? Attraction is such a kind of a, a subjective thing. Like, what does it really mean to be, have attractive values or to have attractive culture? Sure. It can be interpreted in a variety of ways. So because it was so ambiguous in some ways, but also because it defined kind of in some ways the prowess of the U.S., it got really uh, quickly adapted by other countries. Turkey, Iran, Russia have been using and deploying, rethinking this term. But China has been one of the most enthusiastic adapters of the term soft power starting in mid-2000s. We see a lot of articles coming out, just thousands and thousands, which took me a while to shift through and find kind of the more representative ones on what soft power is. A lot of policy debates about soft power and, of course, new terms coming out in Chinese, like cultural power, right? Wenhua, Ranshili, Xinxiang, great power kind of image, big power image, um, discourse power, of course, Huayuqian is familiar to many of us now because it's used so often. Yeah. So all these terms have come out, but what does it actually mean in terms of what's different? So I think there are two differences I want to point out. One difference is that Chinese idea of soft power, I think overall is just much broader. It's broader, more expansive than nice. So that's, that's just the overarching difference. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the big, big distinction. But what, what's, what specifically is it broader on in terms of resources and motivation? So one is that the resources of soft power, the way the Chinese government sees it, and Chinese scholars, they can, they can include almost anything that bolsters you know, China's image. So it's not necessarily just culture values uh, you know, and foreign policy, but also China's you know, technological innovation, mm. economic governance, political capacity building and mobilization, and many other things, right? So culture is emphasized as kind of the core feature, but culture itself is also very ambiguous. It includes traditional culture, values, ideology in it. So culture itself is an all-encompassing, very fluid concept. And then in addition to that, many argue that there are other ways to think about soft power, specifically focusing on politics and economics as, as the key um, kind of additional features or facets of advertising or promoting China's image. So that's, yeah. that's kind of a one big, big disti distinction in terms of, you know, Nai who focuses on culture values and foreign policy and Chinese scholars who see almost anything that helps, you know, bolster China's rise, China's image as potentially part of soft power. Mm -hmm. Including things that he would categorize as payments, actually. Yeah, including things he would categorize as payments. So, you know, they critique uh, in Chinese writings the distinction between hard and soft power is having kind of this really clear line, right? That there's hard and there's soft power. They kind of see that material power, in particular economic power, is very much transfused into cultural attraction or overall image image making, right? In the book, I write a lot about that, just how much of the material kind of enticement and opportunities that China creates um, are connected to its overall image image building. So it's not it's not this you know you can kind of it's hard to distinguish between the two. So now I would probably say that's cooptation, coercion, or you know that's economic cooptation, right? But but from Chinese perspective, I don't think they necessarily see it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's hard for me not to be persuaded a bit by the Chinese argument there. But you know, it's also hard for me not to, to think. God damn it! Why do you keep talking about soft power? The first rule of soft power should be don't talk about soft power. <laughs> Once you start talking, right? Maybe, maybe not. Don't be so outspoken. Well, I guess it's also that they talk amongst themselves, right? It's kind of a an internal conversation. Yeah, yeah. But you know, we're all listening. Yeah, we're all listening. So, you, you, as they talk among themselves, they've kind of divided into three schools, um, three basic ideas about what soft power is, um, and and these are, I guess, like sort of a culture school, a Wenhua Pai. Mm -hmm. One that emphasizes China's political capabilities as a second one, and then you know the state capacity and and, and for, so forth, and then one that that focuses on the attractiveness of China's developmental model. Mm -hmm. I, I can certainly see the appeal of the latter two. I mean, there's just been a lot of discussion about state capacity and government's capability, especially in the time of COVID nineteen, and of late, not just in the global south, but even here in the U.S. There's a certain vogue for Chinese kind of planning, uh, for technocratic planning, industrial policy mm -hmm. in some quarters. Yep. So that's got some traction. <laughs> what puzzles me is the first one, this Wenhua Pai, this culture camp. Uh, those who think that Chinese soft power is ultimately about Chinese culture, they seem to be in the ascent, as you say in the book in China. Mm -hmm. There's more of them. And when it comes to China's own understanding of soft power, I mean, it, it seems kind of deluded or naive to me that they think that 
the appeal is all about, you know, ancient Chinese philosophy and values like harmony and community. It's hard for me to imagine that, I mean, these are, are inherently positive things for sure, but these cultural values taken together just strike me as being very specifically Chinese so that outside of East Asia, it's it's hard for me to imagine them being perceived as anything other than kind of alien or exotic. I mean, this is not BTS or Squid Game, right? Right, yeah. Well, so this, it is a bit puzzling why this particular school is so prominent, but at the same time, if we kind of unpack what the other schools mean and also the various kind of potential impediments on how China presents itself in the world internally, right, bureaucratic impediments, it may be less um, surprising that culture is emphasized this much. So, for instance... Hmm. When it comes to political school, political mobilization, right? In some ways, it is at times perceived, you know, and increasingly so in the West, that China is selling its model, right? Kind of authoritarian political model. So political efficacy mobilization can also be interpreted as kind of China's autocratic model being exported to other countries. And Chinese government is very reluctant to promote this image or it's very resistant to the idea that we're exporting anything, right? So the idea of exporting something political, something coherent. Right. Uh, and then in terms of the economic governance, that's, that's tied to that as well. So, you know, is this something that's kind of uniquely... Chinese and are they exporting it as a, again as a coherent kind of idea um, and how so there's a lot of debates about to what extent China is mainly inspiring other countries you know to potentially do something similar or at the very least maybe just be more you know hardworking productive and you know follow <laughs> some similar footsteps so it's very broad but can they really kind of uh, transform other countries in its own image right I think that's I think many Chinese scholars don't don't believe in that. So, so those kind of, I think, factors may impede. But the other thing is that it's also, you know, potentially sensitive to talk about economic and political governance, you know, without yeah. touching upon some aspects that are not working well, like what aspects of Chinese governance are, they need more, you know, <laughs> further addressing, further thinking, and how do you present or answer those questions? So if you're presenting the model and somebody asks you, oh, we heard the environmental governance in China is not doing so well, how do you respond to that? You have to have those answers ready. And then if something comes out that's too sensitive, you might get punished from your superior, right, in, in your uh, respective organization or bureaucracy. So culture is it's much less sensitive. It's a very broad term. Yeah. But it includes also kind of ideology, Chinese history. So it's not really just cultural kind of norms or values or practices. It's also going back to this distinctiveness of Chinese past, you know, its history of humiliation and rise and ancient history as well as its ideological thought so in many ways it's also rooted in some kind of a in some ways in allegiance with the chinese communist party so culture is also in some ways a chinese communist party in, in its own making so it's, it, th those things are all fused together there's no clear definition of culture in these discussions so is this related to wang huning's idea of culture security as well yeah, so that's very much related to this idea and in fact you know one thing i didn't mention yet but one of the other distinctions between chinese vision of soft power and that of Joseph Nye is that the motivation and the target of soft power in China is as, as focused on domestic, you know, um, publics as on external. So cultural security is all about securing confidence or kind of, you know, securing certain sentiments of allegiance and coherence around one's culture within China. And as a result, being kind of more immune from Western influence. Yeah. And that, you know, that, of course, contributes to the resiliency of the Chinese Communist Party in their view. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I thought really jumped out at me in your book. And I don't think I'd really come across this elsewhere, um, but not highlighted certainly the way that you highlighted. It's this idea that China's soft power concept has this important domestic component, as you say. It's really aimed in part at Chinese people in China. That was really fascinating. And, and I guess it does confer a kind of immunity to the, the persuasions of other cultures, mm -hmm. I suppose, right? Yeah. yeah, I was fascinated by how they use these terms, like community, you know, it's, it's almost this kind of uh, medical terminology and sometimes also war-like terminology of, you know, resistance and war and conflict is kind of used to describe cultures as, you know, as you're immune from like, a virus almost, you know, so I found that language to be very interesting. Um, it kind of makes it sound uh, very hyped up and very sensitive and significant in how they think about Western cultural infusion, transfusion or whatever you call it into China. Well, speaking of Western transfusion into China, that was another thing that, that, that leapt out at me in your book is this idea that the discourse on soft power in China has been used by Chinese intellectuals, uh, especially sort of more liberal Chinese intellectuals, to smuggle in or to camouflage their criticism of the Chinese political system. I have a sense for how that works, uh, I think, but could you spell that out a little more? Yeah, so in some of the writings, uh, they will try to focus uh, on the challenges of Chinese soft power. And I think the overall consensus, which is also worth mentioning, is not that China is doing great. 
right? And soft power, it's not overconfident about its own efforts, but actually they think that there's a lot more to be done. And in many ways, it's not doing well enough. Like that's kind of the consensus. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so then some of these intellectuals, they, they try to unpack, like almost similar to critical journalists that I've researched in my first book, they're trying to kind of unpack some of these challenges and then infuse some solutions, right? Some suggestions of improvement. So one thing that they critique, um, in particular when it comes to Chinese media and its you know, efficacy, we're going to talk about that later on Ukraine, but its influence globally, right? They talk about the fact that Chinese media has you know, it's a lot of restrictions, right? There. It's re- heavily restricted politically, bureaucratically. It doesn't have as much space to tell so-called the good China story. Absolutely. So some of them kind of push on that point and say, well, you know, Chinese media could do much better if it had maybe more openings, more f- flexibility. Uh, more capacity to innovate, right? Innovation, adaptability. Like this. So they focus on these positive traits, but at the same time, very, you know, cautiously hint that maybe some things have to transform from within for that to happen. So to tie these two ideas together, the domestic goals of the soft power crusade uh, with this idea of, of criticism, part of the idea about appealing to Chinese domestic audiences is to increase this sense of self-confidence uh, in, in their own attractiveness. It's something that China has long struggled with, but my sense is that, especially since 2008, China has kind of swung rather too dramatically from this kind of crippling inferiority complex to a kind of bullying swagger, like overconfidence <laughs> without ever settling into that kind of comfortable, attractive self-confidence. Mm-hmm. So is that part of the critique as well that, that, hey, look, I get that you're, you know, you want us to be more confident, but you're overselling this. I mean, and we're producing these really prickly, arrogant nationalists. So that critique, I haven't seen as much publicly uh, written about. I think that might be a little too sensitive, you know? Yeah, that'd be a hard one. <laughs> Especially given that what you just mentioned, the climate has changed so much. Yeah. And I also noticed this really, maybe it's not that quick of a jump, but somehow it feels quite drastic. And so I think expressing that would mean you're criticizing some of these officials in the foreign ministry. You, you know, you're criticizing pretty prominent diplomats. And that might backfire, you know, for one's career at university or as a party of, you know, kind of bureaucrat. So I think that that critique hasn't come out as publicly, but I think privately you hear that, you know, in my research in China pre-pandemic, you know, scholars would reflect on the fact that, you know, is it that useful to have this kind of boisterous stance? And some would say, yeah, China is finally standing up for itself. But others would say that's a little too extreme and that's not really how we think about the world and that's not helpful. So there was quite a variety of opinions when you talk to people privately, but in public, I haven't seen very overt critiques of this approach. So Maria, you mentioned that in the sort of culture school, uh, one major feature is China's ideology. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both the previous and the current American administrations have framed the contest with China as chiefly an ideological one. So to what extent would you say that China's soft power push is ideological? And to what extent is, is America an ideological actor as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And of course, we're seeing this framing of autocracies versus democracies, this kind of unrelinquishing, you know, framing under Trump and now under President Biden as well. Um, I think that this framing can be a little bit um, sort of uh, unhelpful if we think about how Chinese soft power is actually practiced. Right now, we just talked about conceptions of soft power. And I think when they mention ideology, they mainly speak to just adherence and allegiance to the Chinese Communist Party. So kind of that notion that Chinese Communist Party is doing well mm-hmm. in, you know, raising up its own people and that this is the only way that this country works, basically. But not so much that China is trying to remake the world into autocracies and sell this autocratic governance elsewhere. As I mentioned earlier, we don't really see this kind of export emphasis in official discussions nor in practice. But when you look at the actual practice of soft power, I think Chinese approach is actually very pragmatic. It's very opportunistic. Like I talked about the fact that they deploy any types of, you know, resources that make it look more attractive. That's that's conceptually, but also in practice, you see that, you know, they'll combine trade fairs with big diplomatic kind of spectacles. Mm-hmm. They'll offer opportunities for getting jobs at Chinese companies as part of Confucius Institutes, you know, in Ethiopia, where I've done research. And they will often speak to economic dimensions, economic interests first, rather than kind of political uh, interest and the way China presents itself through trainings, you know, with elites from the global south is much less so, or actually completely uh, bypassing the authoritarian dimension, but much more so as a democracy that's, you know, more efficient and more kind of uh, better at performing economically and then focusing a lot on economic aspects. But on the, in the US side, we see in some ways a much more ideational way of promoting a soft power. And we could argue it's also ideological, the ideology being, you know, liberal democracy is kind of the prominent defining system of our age, the most successful system, and of course, our values of freedom, freedom of association, religion, 
um, media, communication, all of that is constantly being, you know, uh, promoted as part of kind of the American dream. Even though, of course, domestically in the U.S., we also have a lot of trouble <laughs> with some of these values and ideas in terms of implementation. But that's how it's promoting itself. And it's been promoting itself this way for many, many decades. Yeah. So in some ways, American kind of self-promotion hasn't changed that much. But China's self-promotion is a lot more pragmatic, a lot more focused on practical interests than its own ideological thought. Mm-hmm. So I do want to get into your field work in Ethiopia and talk about Africa more broadly and, and you know, even the, the, the global south. Uh, but before we do that, I, maybe let's talk a little bit about some of these definitions because when we discuss Chinese soft power efforts, there are a lot of different terms that get thrown around. Some of them are very clearly value-laden and get used, not surprisingly, I suppose, to, to describe China's efforts. You know, others strike me as more neutral and are naturally, you know, the preferred descriptors for what we Americans do. So China does propaganda and sharp power and influence operations while we just engage in public diplomacy. How do you actually distinguish these things operationally? Yeah, so it's tricky because they are conflated together. And I think we've seen many reports coming out of U.S. think tanks that tend to treat most of what China is doing as sharp power or influence operations. I tend to disagree with that because I think we need to look at what actually is happening again on the ground, was how it's being implemented to try to distinguish operationally what is sharp power, coercive influence operations, and what is soft power. In public diplomacy, I see is falling under soft power. It's one of the instruments of soft power. So public diplomacy is a bit more of a narrow term than soft power. Soft power is not defined as kind of the power of attraction. I think the Chinese leadership sees it as power, kind of image making, positive image of China. And public diplomacy is one of the ways in which it deploys this kind of uh, image building. Same thing, I think, for the US. Sharp and coercive power is more about forcing someone to do something. So forcing someone to delete certain content, um, buying their allegiances and so forth. So that's something that's, you know, distinctive from kind of overall public diplomacy practices that I find in the book, in some ways mirror what the US and other countries are doing. That said, I think Chinese public diplomacy, if you look at it closely, it can in- include some of these kind of sharper edges, right? So yeah, yeah. For, for example, like, you know, if you have journalists traveling to China for, you know, trainings and fellowships, they're not really required to say very particular things about China, but they're encouraged to write, you know, articles that are, see- you know, seeing or presenting China in a positive light. And when I looked at many of these articles produced by journalists who came from Africa and Southeast Asia, they were mostly very positive articles. So in some ways, there's kind of this co-creation of China's image. And the expectation is that, you know, you should be grateful. You should kind of, you know, reciprocate by producing positive content and not asking too many negative questions, you know, not embarrassing China, right? So even though that's not explicitly said, there is this kind of sharper edge that, you know, you're supposed to kind of follow through and give back, right? This is about image building for us. So you're coming here for free. So you got to, you know, reciprocate. So that could be kind of seen as a sharper edge of larger public diplomacy, you know, sort of initiative of bringing people to China. But but conceptualizing or treating all of it as coercive and sharp power, I think, really dilutes, you know, the whole picture. And it makes it very difficult for us to understand to what extent what China is doing is in some cases, you know, overall just public diplomacy and which aspects are kind of the sharper edges. In what ways might it use this to potentially co-opt or... Uh, attempt to present itself in a, in a particular kind of skewed way, right? So I think it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. I try to look at this empirically. So I would examine, you know, what they're saying and then what they're doing and how people are responding to it. And I think it also helps to look at it comparatively. It's like to see, is this different from the US yeah. right, or, or from Western Europe? And that also helps us distinguish which aspects are more coercive and which aspects are more related to public diplomacy. So I think both need to be studied. There's a lot to study on both domains. So I'm not by any chance kind of dismissing the fact that there is sharp power. But I think we also have to look at public diplomacy as its own sort of uh, initiative, and it's multifaceted and dynamic, and it has many, many different angles, including sharper edges, but that's not the only defining feature. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, Marie, I would say that conventional wisdom now says that Chinese soft power efforts have broadly failed in Europe and in the developed world, in the United States especially. And if you look at public opinion polling about attitudes toward China, that's in ample evidence. However, conventional wisdom is now coming around to the idea that it's been a success in the global south. Can you can you talk about that based on your field work and, and how would you you contrast American public diplomacy efforts and uh, Chinese soft power efforts in, in, in the global south and, and who's doing better? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, in terms of success versus failure, I think my first critique of that uh, question, not really the question, but the framing is that it's, it's very binary, right? That right, right, right. Be successful. So, so I think that sometimes the, the trouble is that people are looking for very easy kind of uh, 
solutions of what's successful. But when we look at success, we can measure it different ways. So first of all, public opinion polls is the key kind of indicator of success so far, the way that's been established, you know, in, in the contemporary debates. So public opinion polls are more favorable vis-a-vis China in the global south. That's 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 right. Especially in Africa, we've seen pretty high um, ratings. And also in Russia, interestingly, we're going to get to Russia later, but the pretty high ratings recently in terms of perceptions of China, mm. favor, favorability towards China, much, much lower ratings and declining ratings in the West and global north. So there is that kind of dichotomy. So in, in some sense, yeah, it's a, maybe hard to see the world into success and failure, but we do see public opinion polls pointing to some directions that maybe showcase China is more favorable viewed or you know, perceived in better light. At the same time, when we kind of unpack you know, on the ground how people engage with China, we see that public opinion polls, they always have certain limitations because the questions, of course, are kind of uh, general, right? And not everybody is willing to say something that's potentially sensitive through those polls and you don't have space to really engage in more nuanced answers. So when you do interviews on the ground or you observe the perceptions of China, I think they're very contradictory and mixed, you know, on the one hand, a very opportunistic engagement with what China is offering. So enthusiasm for taking on what China is giving, right? Mm -hmm. So scholarships, learning Chinese language, if it benefits or it creates job opportunity, engaging with Chinese media, if it's free or if it helps in some ways to produce a report for, say, Ethiopian media, uh, going on certain trips. uh, And of course, you know, carving out various projects, right? Big infrastructure projects that may help governments look better and so forth. And, And public itself, you know, buying cheaper phones, right, that are made in, in, in China, um, buying cheaper technological products more broadly, just all kinds of material products that are just mostly made in China these days. It's, you know, people are engaging with them and, and taking them on board, right, taking advantage of them. At the same time, when you ask, like, do you like this, you know, engagement or this product or this uh, particular um, interaction with China, a lot of the uh, sentiment is quite critical or at the very least a bit cynical and um concerned about the long-term influence of China in their home countries, right? So is China here to stay? Right. Like, are the loans uh, kind of agreements, are they fair? You know, are the terms fair? Are we going to be able to repair or repay those terms? And, and I think there's also a big dichotomy or kind of tension between the scale of what China is offering and the quality. So the scale is enormous. Right. And you mentioned about what China is, you know, versus the U.S. U.S. can compete on that scale on most of these things, whether it's infrastructure or trainings or educational stuff. Like you, they just can't compete in offering this much. But the quality is often questioned as kind of a subpar, like the quality isn't good enough. And people talk about like, you know, educational experience is very mixed, you know, terms. They talk about trainings is not always learning experience, but more kind of, you know, just diplomatic spectacles. You know, they talk about the infrastructure as potentially breaking or, you know, breaking down in a few years. So there's a lot of critique of like, is this really high quality? Sure. And I think that's sure. something that is true across Global South, including in Southeast Asia as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, we're in Africa, especially we're seeing kind of a contest between Chinese and American public diplomacy. Um, mm-hmm. People talk about BRI versus B3W and things like that, different, you know, competing development policies and initiatives. Um, and all that has soft power ramifications. You've talked to American diplomats in Africa. What's your sense of how they perceive China's presence and its position? Because, you know, I think a lot of them are now tasked with doing this. There are these kind of listening posts now. Yeah, they're interesting. Uh, I think that started during the Pompeo uh, tenure at the State Department, but yeah, I was quite fascinated by this. By this new, I forget the exact name of the position. They're the kind of China watchers yeah, yeah. within the U.S. embassy. So I, I think the first one might have been based in Kenya, and then they expanded to other places. In fact, somebody I spoke to in, who was based in Africa is now based in, I think it might be Sarajevo. Like she, so she, they move around and they have this, you know, mission to track China um, and to see what China is doing on the ground. So. That's kind of a new thing, maybe the past three years or so that's in, in, in the making. But in terms of the per- overall perceptions, I mean, they're mixed, of course, but overall, I found that the perception is quite negative. Mm-hmm. So cynical, negative, um, dismissive. So, you know, all these efforts that China is doing is, are, are there to indebt these countries. A long term influence will be very you know, harmful. The implications are extremely, extremely bad for these countries when it comes to sustaining themselves and so forth. Um, and overall, what the U.S. is offering, you know, in their view, is much more, again, sustainable. Uh, it, it comes with much better governance, more transparency. It, it's, it's, you know, it's connected to um, the demands and kind of the care of, of the people themselves, not just governments and elites. So U.S. can differentiate itself as, as much more, I guess, a thoughtful developmental partner and a long-term sustainable kind of partner versus China that is all, you know, basically after its own gains, right? Opportunistic and, and cares only about its own interests. Right. So there, there's, a, I think there is that perception. Few officials I spoke to had a bit of a more balanced view that would say, actually, it's good that China is building infrastructure because we can't do that. And then we can provide something else. So we can kind of, you know, build on what they have uh, committed to and then maybe carve out other projects that help us, you know, 
implement other initiatives because we have the infrastructure now. So kind of like taking advantage of what China has done versus just dismissing it. Yeah. No, that's- so it's not, it's, there's no like uniform view, but I think overall my sense was quite a bit of skepticism and almost like aggravation, annoyance. Like, oh yeah, China is here. Like, <laughs> this latest airport they built is gonna, probably going to fall apart soon, but you know, it's all built by Chinese workers. Like kind of dismissive uh, commentaries like that, but also in some degree, a bit of ignorance about what China is doing on the ground. And maybe this is pre- that kind of posting phase when they had the China, now that they have the China watchers, but at least in Ethiopia, I was surprised that some officials didn't know that there were a certain number of Confucius institutes. They knew that there are some, but they didn't know that there are two major ones and four Confucius classrooms across the country. Mm. They didn't know what they really offer them. They didn't know that much about the jobs or what the jobs pay, right, when they graduate. So they, they didn't really study uh, those conditions. They didn't really engage in those uh, kind of um, domains of Chinese soft power. They sort of chose to ignore them. So I found that to be also interesting. Like, is this really competition or is it kind of more like we're doing our own thing and you're doing yours and we just choose not to engage with each other while we're in the same country? <laughs> Maria, there was another thing that I found really fascinating in your book. And, and this kind of speaks to the way that China has expanded or kind of blurred the lines around what soft power is. Uh, and it's connected to China's rollout of telecommunications infrastructure in, in Africa and elsewhere in the global south. Um, they're not just laying down the pipes, as it were, but they're also pumping in content as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and one example of that was Star Times in Africa, all the energy that it's putting into uh, creating content to to pump into that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, what they're doing, and what Star Times is? Because, yeah, I don't think a lot of people don't know Star Times. So Star Times Group is a private company uh, that's based in Beijing, but they primarily focus on the African market, and they have very close links with the, the Chinese Communist Party as well, with various officials and I visited the company for a tour with actually some students from um, Beida uh, African Studies Center. So we went for a tour and I was just impressed by how good they were at PR, inc- incredibly smooth, you know, thinking about soft power, right? Like we think of this kind of awkwardness of some of this Chinese messaging, but this was not at all awkward. It was incredibly smooth, almost transparent. You know, here's what we're doing. Here are all the programs we're doing in particular recording and dubbing a lot of these Chinese <laughs> soap operas and all kinds of different shows uh, into many, many African languages. Wow. So as I was walking by, I was I was just observing all this dubbing being done in real time, which I found fascinating. And also they do all kinds of competitions across Africa where they recruit local students for these dubbing jobs. Wow. So it's kind of like a festive event and it's very celebratory. You get to be recruited, you make money, and then maybe you get to travel to Beijing. So that's one thing that I found quite uh, you know impressive. But the other thing is that you know they do offer basically digital television packages, right? So that's, that's their main kind of business. They offer digital TV packages that are cheaper than anybody else can offer and they're very popular. And in those packages, they also infuse some Chinese content. So it's not all Chinese, it's very smart. Like they'll have like Western media content, they'll have some local content and then they'll put in some Chinese, you know, educational shows, mm. you know, especially pop culture, some shows. And, and that seems to be the way they kind of, in some ways, you know, include some of these uh, ideation elements into the, into the actual uh, technological facet, right? So it's not just technology, it's also some some ideas, some practices, some cultural exposure. So I think that's a really um, interesting, intriguing, you know, example of Chinese soft power um, when we look at this potentially much more successful than, say, China's state media reporting of, you know, China-Africa relations. So it's, it's really interesting how they kind of localize. Most of their staff is local. I don't know if it's 90% or more. They were very proud of the fact that they're, you know, extremely localized operations and that they do all this, as I said, dubbing sessions and festive gatherings and you know, all kinds of different activities that are also aligned with that and providing this TV packages that include, you know, some Chinese content, but also many, many other uh, types of shows and news um, broadcasts. So one of the other areas that we flicked out of this a little bit, but uh, is China's push to become kind of an education hub to, to be, you know, known for uh, capacity building, for, for, for uh, you know, language training, for, uh, you know, all sorts of other training programs, agricultural mm-hmm. extension uh, can you talk about the extent to which that's been successful to date and, and especially uh, about the big hurdle that you identify in your book, which I completely agree, which is racial prejudice? Uh, because, you know, I think many of our listeners are going to remember incidents from recent years, like especially in, in Guangzhou, uh, when, when a lot of Nigerians and other West Africans were sort of kicked out and had to spend the night in the street uh, after they were evicted. Is is official China still in denial about this, or do you think there's a growing awareness and any attempts to kind of address it at at the, you know, at the ground level? Yeah. So first of all, just more broadly in terms of China becoming the education hub, I guess I've, I found that to be one of the most interesting aspects of you know doing research for this book because. Mm. 
we don't talk about it enough. I think we talk a lot about media again because maybe it's because it's related to sharp power, you right. know, media, uh, kind of Confucius Institutes. Of course, they're very popular in, in the negative light, you know, here in the U.S. But education, in terms of you know bringing students to China, I think it's something that has been a major transformation for just China's overall kind of uh, direction in terms of its educational development. Because just what 20, 30 years ago. It was primarily China learning from the West or sending its students to the West. But now it's actually in some ways has educated quite a significant um, workforce of Chinese faculty, professors who are coming you know, with diplomas from various universities in the West. And they're teaching students from the global South. Mm. So it's kind of a trickle down of globalization effect, which I found just really interesting. And, and most of them are coming on their own dime. So they're not there on scholarships. They're coming on their own you know, wow. uh, funding because it's low cost. So India and China seem to be actually competing for many of the students uh, because of the the cost advantages that they offer in comparison to Western Europe and the U.S. So that's just one kind of you know point to make. And I think it's around 80,000 African students that are currently based in China. So very, very big uh, number. And I believe it's about half of that in the U.S. So it's already like, you know, a huge flow of students wow. uh, that are coming to, to China. So this brings us to the race uh, question. And yeah, we definitely have seen, you know, quite intense frictions, conflicts, especially during the pandemic with in Guangzhou with residents. They were not necessarily students, but, you know, more kind of, uh, I guess, there were migrants and traders. They were driven out of their homes even and extremely mistreated. All sorts of images being taken through social media, transmitted back to their home countries and ambassadors and officials in Africa calling in, you know, Chinese ambassadors to talk about this. It was really dramatic kind of PR disaster for China. What has happened since then, um, not that much, I would say. I mean, this, the, the students were also part of this battle. There were many of them were also discriminated and were felt very much alienated. There were a lot of really interesting podcasts coming out of the time about race and yeah, being yeah. A, an African student. And China and Africa podcast uh, has done a great job documenting some of these voices. Uh, but what has happened, the Chinese government has de- denied any presence of racism uh, in China. And uh, what they have done, which I think is somewhat predictable, they, I guess, quietly punished some of these Guangzhou officials and uh, told them to extend maybe some visas to local, you know, African residents to kind of soften some of their policies when it comes to prolonging their stay or not being as actively checking their registration or just making them feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so they, on the ground, they have kind of softened a few measures, but in terms of the actual public discourse on this, not that much, I think, has happened. And I also analyzed social media discussions on this topic at the time, and they're extremely, you know, problematic in terms of just racial biases and. Uh, aggression and um, a lot of sentiments of discontent that, you know, in particular, uh, African migrants are taking over Guangzhou, the city is disappearing, it's unsafe, you know, all these kind of tropes of safety over kind of sexualization, you know, of Chinese, uh, African men. So all kinds of very familiar tropes that are coming up in these discussions and very few voices from this analysis stood up to defend these African uh, residents. So that to me was kind of a sign that unofficially, right, again, in public, there's quite a you know, quite a strong sentiment uh, of discontent and also critique of the government for giving scholarships to these African students. Mm. Why are they getting scholarships? And this, of course, is a historic trend. Like this, this has been a big critique over time. I think even under Mao, there probably was a lot of discontent about foreign students coming in and getting better conditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And nowadays, you know, we still have Chinese students, multiple students in one dorm room. I don't know what the conditions exactly are now, but foreign guests, foreign students gets, you know, somewhat better conditions, right? Maybe one person per room, two people per room. And there's a lot of critique of kind of privileging the students that they can get in easier, they get better conditions. Why? And then they end up dating, you know, Chinese women. And that there's the kind of this gender dynamic comes in here. Um, That there's some, we're sacrificing our women, right? So, so overall, I think there hasn't been a a public or kind of officially led, you know, discussion of race, uh, but mostly in a version of this topic. For sure. Uh, there's so much more to talk about with when it comes to soft power, but I do want to get, you know, to shift gears now and talk about China's response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact. But mm-hmm. maybe let's get there by way of another soft power related question. We tend to see Beijing's official response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine as unquestionably eroding Chinese soft power. And when it comes to the West, that seems to be the case. I mean, I don't think it's arguable. The February 4th joint statement, which is, you know, all larded with pains to Sino-Russian friendship with no limits, blah, blah. You know, Hua Chuying from the, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs calling the U.S. the culprit in her infamous press conference. And, you know, Wang Yi has actually doubled down on the on the strategic partnership with Russia in the last mm-hmm. couple of days. None of that makes yeah. China look good in the eyes of, of the West. It reinforces, I should say, you know, in the American mind, this idea that China and Russia form kind of an axis of authoritarianism. But what about in Africa and elsewhere in the global south? Does China's Russia-leaning neutrality play just as poorly in the developing world as in the developed world? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the the way that this will play in the developing world probably won't be as uh, severe when it comes to China's image. And there are several reasons for that. I mean, I think, first of all, if we look at the UN Security Council resolution, right. the recent resolutions, we see that many, many African countries, I don't know, I don't remember the exact number, but the number of them have either not showed up, uh, not shown up for the vote or they abstained. So the support was not by any means uniform in favor of the Western sanctions and the overarching critique uh, of Russia as the culprit in this war. So what, what does that mean? You know, they're, they're, they're kind of them abstaining or not critiquing. I think part of it is the idea of not picking sides. This kind of non-alignment is something that is, is, has very deep historic roots, sure. you know, dating back to Bandung Conference and China. And I think many African countries share that, this idea that, you know, you want to be aligned. You don't need to take sides. This is a, this idea of staying in the middle. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, reflects deeper historic legacies. But the other side of it is that many of these African countries, they also are starting to build closer relationships with Russia. So mm. in, this, in this sense, you know, we think about China's influence there, but Russia is stepping up its game. It kind of mimics some of these summits, summit diplomacy that you know China has embraced, like FOCAC is the China's version. Russia has set up a Russia-Africa summit, and there's actually one taking place in Addis Ababa, I believe, this coming fall. So wow. I really hope I can maybe travel to, you know, be the fly on the wall if I can get in there. <laughs> but but yeah, that's that's really interesting how they're kind of replicating some of these efforts and and a lot of uh, you know not a, I don't know how, the number, but quite a number of intellectuals and. People on Twitter, you know, coming from various African countries, were supporting Russia on on this on this in this conflict, and also pointing at racism. Again, we go go back to the race card. You know, in this conflict, of course, we had uh, you know stark images of African students not being able to board trains to exit Ukraine, right. and uh, also images of them being harassed and pushed back and so forth. And that, of course, plays very strongly in the African context. These are students from their home countries; they can't get out. So, in this context, you know, this was framed in some tweets I read as kind of you know. We need to rescue the students, but also we stand with Russia. You know, Ukraine is discriminating. So all kinds of uh, commentaries that are not necessarily, <laughs> or not even close to being pro-Western. Yeah, yeah. And then lastly, I think, you know, China, from what I've seen in this kind of diplomatic messaging on, in Africa, they haven't been really discussing Ukraine that much. They're kind of under under-reporting or under undercovering this this topic. They're talking a lot about just China's, again, economic presence in Africa, China-Africa relations, but not pointing to the Ukraine conflict as as much as maybe they could have. So maybe that also kind of shapes uh, or affects some of these perceptions. But overall, I, my guess is that China's lack of you know, strong commitment to one side and its pro-Russia leaning won't necessarily hurt its image significantly um, in the global south. Maybe it will vary by country. Maybe with some countries that have strongly spoken out against Russia, they might shift or at least have some stronger sentiments about this. But those that have it, of course, wouldn't be as affected. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier how in Russia, favorability toward China in the in the general population has been ticking up in recent years. How is China portrayed recently? I mean, have you been following what Russian media has been saying about China since the invasion began? Have they have they talked about China? Yeah, so I I have been trying to keep up with that along with Chinese media. So it's a bit of a crazy yeah yeah mix of things in my head right now. But but what I've been following is that at least earlier on there have been quite a number of statements made by Russian officials and you know various reports in Russian media that use this kind of you know somewhat ambiguous stance of China and the fact that China is not aligning with the West as very much being pro-Russia. So China stands with us. There have been some comments made that you know Russia is not alone. We have this. One of the strongest partners in the world, one of the strongest nations is actually with Russia. That was kind of the initial uh, reaction. But then more recently, just yesterday, I was looking at the latest report um, about, I guess it came from from Russia, the Russian official claimed that China will not provide um, certain aviation parts That's right. you know, That's to, right. to Russia. And that was taken, you know, that was quite a big topic of debate that was taken with some critique, but also just a lot of discussion. Like, is this true? Is it fake? But also, you know, China has been forced or pressured by the United States. So I think we're starting to see some of these kind of fractures or some maybe tensions arising when we're actually looking at what China is really giving or what is it able to sacrifice for this friendship, right? This strategic partnership. Is it going to be able to rescue um, Russia from some of these uh, impediments due to sanctions or is it going to stand by and protect its own interests? And if so, how do you keep saying that this is your key partner if it's not actually doing something to support you? So I think this is a really interesting space to watch as more of these decisions are going to be made by Chinese government. What about the opposition in Russia, Putin opponents, say supporters of Alexei Navalny? Do they also tend to be really strong critics of Xi and the Chinese leadership? Yeah, so I was actually trying to find something on Navalny's stance uh, on China, and it was not a whole lot of information that maybe was publicly available, but one of the things that came up was that he was comparing Russian prison to a Chinese labor camp. Uh. 
So this was a very big kind of tagline that is all over Russian media and some Western media as well, because he obviously he's in jail. So he was comparing the conditions and the propaganda he's facing there, just the dire life that he's leading there um, to Chinese labor camp, which was interesting kind of contrast, you know, sort of in some ways, I guess, implying that both of them are equally authoritarian and, uh, you know, just not, yeah, this kind of comparison to me is indicative of maybe in some ways of this symbolically how he sees the two. At the same time, he's quite a nationalistic uh, figure. And according to a number of Russian analysts, he wouldn't necessarily dramatically shift course away from China because they share such a long border that they have so many issues to, you know, reckon with economically. So to defend Russia's interest in this case, stepping completely away from China would not be very smart or practical. So I imagine he wouldn't necessarily be as maybe uh, as contentious or critical in his remarks if, if he became president. I'm trying to work out in my mind whether a Chinese labor camp is worse or better than a Stalin-era gulag. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, or well, this Russian prison. Yeah. I'm sure that he's, yeah. he's under the worst possible conditions. Yeah, yeah. So, Maria, let's talk about your excellent piece in The Atlantic, which I had the chance to read last night. Uh, your perspective is completely spot on. I think, it, I mean, I was like, yes, this is this is correct. So, in a nutshell, just you argue that China's pro-Russian lean has very little actually to do with fellow feeling for Russia, but is instead all about America. Totally agree. Howard French actually made the same point in a great piece that he wrote for World Politics Review. Mm -hmm. um, China's response is basically emotional. It sees Putin as kind of mm -hmm. the face of defiance to American mm -hmm. hegemony. Uh, what's interesting is that you find evidence of this across much of Chinese society because you draw on you know, not only statements by elites and policymakers and media, but also in the broader public, you know, online. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the relationship between what we're seeing on, on Weibo and WeChat and in comments sections and so forth, the popular views, and mm -hmm. actual Chinese foreign policy in this case. Are elites and ordinary people who express support for, for Russia, are they responding to the same kind of emotional impulses? Yeah, when you look at the Chinese official comments, and as you mentioned, you know, Wang Yi has kind of stepped up this uh, rhetoric about strategic partnership with Russia, but also the rhetoric against the U.S. has also been significantly accelerating. So, for instance, the latest is the biolabs, right? This, this potential of the U.S. as having some kind of biological weapons uh, that are, um, you know, yeah, based in Ukraine in various laboratories or that they have, they, they are threatening the very security, safety of the country, and potentially, of course, threatening Russia. That rhetoric about those biological weapons is widely, you know, being uh, shared, not only by Russian media, but also by Zhao Lijian, you know, one of the spokespeople for the foreign ministry. So that, so this kind of anti-American... <laughs> what a surprise. What a surprise. Yeah, of course, he's, he loves this <laughs> argument. He's been, he's been keeping up with it for a while. It's kind of his, maybe his mantra. Although it's not as bad as what I read in Russian media yesterday, which was that there's some birds that are being trained in Ukraine to carry those biological I don't know, weapons or some kind of biological you know, <laughs> threats, like the birds are carrying them oh, from Christ. Ukraine to Russia. Okay. So I was like, oh my God, this is just too much. I couldn't handle it. So, so not quite as bad, but yeah, we do see this very emotional response and um, very, um, we could say, militant, assertive response uh, that targets the US, that targets very much the US. And NATO is, you know, one of the kind of uh, larger products of U.S. Uh, hegemony. So we see similar responses on social media, in some ways, of course, more dramatic. Like there's there, the terms that I use in the Atlantic, some of the, like the phrases we captured with, with Wendy were like something like NATO will pay for its, you know, the bloodbath it created, like, you know, very, very dramatic phrases. So to, they, the officials wouldn't use that language, but the sentiment is not, not that different. You open the piece with these great little analogies, which I have seen. I mean, my wife sent it to me. All sorts of people have sent these things to me. Uh, mm -hmm. Selling this little parable about you know comparing Ukraine to a woman who has uh, what uh, like taken the kids and left on oh, I, I was just can you can you yeah, yeah. <laughs> spell that out and 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 you know what is its appeal uh, to to Chinese people I mean obviously it's nested in a family metaphor which you know is something that Chinese people will immediately resonate with it's funny because every time somebody does something like this like the the the, the Hong Kong parables about kidnapped children and, and stuff like that uh that that the same kind of thing but um it, so so how does this one work yeah so in this case it's kind of a love triangle metaphor the way that it was characterized so it is definitely a family metaphor but also a bit of a drama right there's a love triangle right so in Ukraine is characterized as Russia's like ex-wife um who mistreated the couple's children right there so um, Lugansk and Donetsk are the two republics uh, in eastern Ukraine that have been claimed to be independent, right, given right. independent status by Russia. So they mistreated the children. 
that Ukraine has mistreated because, of course, Russia claims that many Russian speakers in those regions have been severely mistreated. That's that's the, the big argument yeah. for protecting the citizens. And then on top of that, Ukraine has been flirting with a new partner, right? It wants to be actually in a different relationship. That's why the love triangle comes in. It wants to be with the United States and part of the bigger NATO family. So it wants to be somewhere that it sees as maybe more prestigious or better for itself. Uh, so it presents this kind of, uh, you know, imagery of Ukraine is this seductress. First of all, it has a female kind of, uh, you know, character. Uh, that's the female form is that, you know, seducing this partner, but you, but it was denied, right? So U- U.S. has actually pushed Ukraine aside. So, yeah, so basically it formed like the wrong alliance, right? Russia is the original partner. It's shifted from Russia to this, you know, seductive uh, United States, but it was denied uh, love. It's, it's actually been rejected. And that's something that also goes along with some other comments I've seen on Weibo or the Analyze that basically argues that Ukraine has formed the wrong alliances. It should have, you know, it, it formed the wrong great power alliance. So it's its own fault, right? It should have stepped up its game and picked the right partner. Yeah, it's what a depressing metaphor. I mean, that there's such misogyny built into it, as you point out in the article, too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and some misogyny was critiqued by Chinese uh, social media users. So it's not that everybody accepts it. But, but you know, of course, this, this misogyny point was also discussed in some depth uh, in sub-China, right? And then the uh, sub-China faced <laughs> some repercussions for that. So, oh, yeah. So it seems that this misogyny <laughs> that point is fun. actually <laughs> turned, yeah, turned out way more sensitive than... I didn't expect it to gain this much attention, but that's that's yeah, yeah. What, that's what happened. I've got all sorts yeah. of thoughts about what happened to us, but anyway. <laughs> so, but here, I mean, despite all that, I, I think it's important to try to step into Chinese shoes for a minute and you know see what the experience of the last three or four years has felt like from the, the Chinese perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know where does all this uh, anger toward America, this resentment toward America, come from? I, I think it's not hard to imagine. You know, because the Chinese mm-hmm. public, Chinese elites, they would feel this nonstop. Trade war, tech kneecapping, Meng Wanzhou and Huawei, allegations of genocide in Xinjiang, this belief that, you know, American, uh, sponsored people were, were making mischief in Hong Kong, uh, mm-hmm. COVID, you know, the blame for it in various forms, you know, from, you know, China covered it up to China, you know, created it as a bioweapon or that at least it was a lab leak. It's China's fault in some way or another. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, even even um, the criticism of China's handling of it every time, you know, it's the draconian crackdown, at what cost, all this stuff, you know, the Xi'an reporting. Right. So it's not hard to understand the source of the anger, just as it's not hard to understand right. the source of, you know, American displeasure with China. That's also easy to understand. Mm-hmm. But wh- where do you see this going? I mean, is this just a kind of cathartic release for China, a chance to, you know, you know like vent by proxy the country's, you know, frustration with American hegemony. I mean, Xi Jinping's got to recognize that he has to think beyond just this this immediate response. I, do you anticipate that the party leadership will try to retake control of the discourse and maybe try to play, play this in a more level-headed way going forward, that pragmatism will prevail? Yeah, so a couple of points. This also relates to our discussion on soft power that I, I was thinking about when you mentioned this comment of frustration with the U.S. over the years. Something that also struck me in the larger discussions of soft power is that U.S. is often positioned as the key impediment yeah. of China's soft power. If not on the U.S., we would have been fine, right? Like, and, you know, of course, some some of these liberal scholars, as you mentioned, critique maybe the the media is not being open enough. But many also argue that the key impediment really is U.S. hegemony. That U.S. media is constantly pushing down right on China. There's this deep frustration that whatever you, China does is not enough. So you know. Maria, it's just like if China was married to a hand-pecking, uh, oppressive woman who who keeps him from realizing his true potential. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I'm going you know, to yeah, put that out on Weibo and become famous. Yeah, <laughs> Very famous. Yeah, I'm sure it's going to go down well with all this nationalistic... Uh uh, people, but uh, but yeah, I think that this kind of fits feeds into a larger idea that there is if the frustration is real, it's not manufactured, right? We see that it's, it's taking place at several levels, and it is cathartic to express some of these uh, sentiments, but also speaking to this domestic uh, kind of positioning or targeting of Chinese soft power in general yeah. or image making. We see that maybe some of these officials are speaking to domestic publics, right? That they're strongly reasserting China's position in the world. They're saying that the U.S. is to blame for the larger expansionism and NATO and all the different wars we've seen in the past. The U.S. is always using double standards and pushing down on you know other powers. So they're using this conflict in a way as a proxy to also assert their own positionality. And I think that speaks favorably amongst more nationalistic uh, part of the population in China. So this kind of domestic targeting may also be a factor here. Is it going to be more level-headed uh, as it moves forward? For now, we don't see any signs of the rhetoric 
is dramatically changing. We see a few signs like China providing aid to Ukraine. That's that's a new thing. So that's at least attempting to be a little bit more engaged. Uh, we see a lot of calls for peace, but not so much active mediation of this peace. Like, what does it mean to call for peace? Are you going to be actively right. setting these two sides up together? And will you put pressure on Putin? We don't really see that. At least we don't know much about that. Public, publicly, it's not visible. Uh, what we do see, though, is also concerns and at the very least some caution around this alliance with Russia uh, in terms of economic costs for China. I think that's something that China will be very concerned about. And we see, of course, the National Party Congress meetings, sessions, everything is about Chinese economy. And on social media, and something we discussed in this article as well, there are also kind of reflections on the costs Russia is facing yeah. and how can China preempt that. So I think the cautionary tale of this invasion may be something that will also stick with China in terms of moving forward. Would that mean that it's going to be more level-headed and how it actually publicly communicates uh, its response to this conflict? I'm not sure, but I think it might be less eager to support Russia economically. So all of this talk about, you know, how the party is going to manage the media and messaging on this takes us back to, to the, you know, soft power. I mean, we're, we're still, we haven't really left soft power, which is good. Mm-hmm. Especially the, the power of the Western media. I mean, one thing that has become glaringly obvious is just the enormous mm-hmm. discursive power of the American and more generally, you know, the, the Anglophone or Western media. This is not to say that the facts themselves have had no role in this. I mean, it's to me, it's obvious, irrespective of who you see covering this, just, you know, to see, well, obviously, Ukrainian resolve and Zelensky's ability to, you know, just rise to this occasion show just such amazing courage. I'm going to have a T-shirt printed that says, you know, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Uh, oh, I was about to order that as well. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, this this is all done a lot to shape attitudes, including at the state level. But China must find the, the quote-unquote Western media to be truly formidable, yeah? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I haven't interviewed this journalist about how they see it now, but I have observed, uh, actually, yesterday I was watching Xinwen Lianbo for a while uh, from the very mm-hmm, beginning of the invasion, mm-hmm. and I started looking at CGTN, and we see like a, quite a big difference between the two. Uh, CGTN is trying to be more global. It's trying to right. compete with its global outlets. At the beginning, almost no coverage, but as the conflict goes on, we see more and more coverage coming out of uh, Ukraine itself. So kind of more local scenes and more balanced account of local suffering. Uh, more balanced account of various victims and some reporting of refugee floods and evacuations. Wow. So I think there's, that to me signals that there's an attempt to kind of maybe catch up with some of these global media giants. And we see some of these journalists, you know, being in the field and they're in this extremely uh, precaution, uh, precautious conditions, right? It's very dangerous and they're still kind of straddling and trying to report. So we do see that kind of coming out more from CGTN than from domestic Chinese channels like, like CCTV, right? right? So. That, that, that difference is quite striking, and I think that to me signals that, yeah, they do sense that they're not competitive because obviously you can't tell a one-sided story, be competitive with major global outlets that are reporting much more vivid and much more engaging coverage. And I think part of it is also speaks to Ukraine itself. You know, it's been actually, I think, strikingly open with the media. Like you see people willing to talk to journalists yeah. and also, of course, officials and military allowing them to be part of this spaces. I can't imagine, for instance, in Russia, this kind of thing being allowed and tolerable, right? You see individuals expressing themselves and, you know, some of them are very fluent in English, some less so, but attempting to really engage their message. And you also see the same thing with various military people and just trying to explain what they're doing. And they're they're inviting journalists to be kind of part of the story. And I think that also reinforces uh, the coverage, right? I think that's something that we have to give agency to the Ukrainian side on that. Yeah, you know, we should be talking about Ukrainian soft power, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible what Zelensky has done with his communication. Right alongside their hard power. Right. It's, it's really, I mean, it's, it, it has mobilized quite deep sentiments uh, from around the world. So it's, I think that's, you know, that's, that speaks to their power. Maria, in your recent book, uh, you contrast China's storytelling agenda with that of Russia. I think you just gave some really excellent examples of this. I think this is a really important distinction. You say that Russia is more interested in, I'm going to quote you here, manufacturing a negative image of its main rival, the United States than telling its own story, um, that's for sure. China is, by contrast, more defensive. You know, its focus has been on how China is misunderstood or misconstrued in the Anglophone media. Uh, there's really no Chinese language equivalent of RT, even though some people in China believe that there should be. I have this horrible feeling presaged by all this wolf warrior, Jolly Jian stuff, and the, you know, the pugnacious attitudes that we've seen coming from uh, some other people in the foreign ministry, uh, that China is starting down that road uh, mm-hmm. toward RT. Already we're seeing like official Chinese outlets spreading, as you were saying, you know, the bio weapon stuff, you know, this a lot of a lot of disinformation on the web. Do you think it's likely that we're going to see a quote unquote Chinese equivalent of RT? 
gosh, I hope not. <laughs> um, is it likely? So yeah, so a few points there. I think that we see. I don't know if it's being called artization or some kind of yeah, no, that's like a that. good we word. Yeah, we see some some kind of artichoir. Yeah, we see some of that, especially with the wolf warrior style uh, of communication, right on uh, on social media. I see that much more kind of much more of a convergence between Chinese uh, and Russian style of kind of this destructive and uh, uh, sort of sentiment and communication really with the West rather than kind of uh, about Russia or China in particular. Mm. But we don't see as much of it yet. I think on uh, state media. If, I mean, I did look at Simon Yambo for the past the whole week or whatever. It's been ten days since the invasion and. The story that they're pushing out, they do rely on Russian sources, so that, that they definitely showcase Russian side more, but they don't necessarily inflame the conspiracy theories quite so much. They don't necessarily pr produce this very kind of uh, dramatic rhetoric, and I don't think that they're doing that as much in CGTN either. I think what they're doing more on CGTN is presenting this kind of double standard device, right, that, that I also talk about in, the, in this piece right. for the Atlantic, this idea of comparing, right? So they're like, the Palestinians are treated really badly, right, by... Israel, U.S. supports Israel, but there they're standing with Ukraine. So all kinds of like, you know, kind of what about them or just kind of this comparisons being made. That right, the U.S. Right, right. Is, is, is bad and this is, you know, this is bad and everything, nothing really matters, kind of in, inspiring cynicism. But I haven't seen as many very provocative uh, attacks uh, on CGTN or Simon Yambo. But we do see the reliance more on Russian sources. That's something that's been written about today in the Times as oh. well. This increasing drawing on Russian sources. I was surprised just by how much they're covering it from the Russian perspective in terms of showcasing scenes from the Kremlin, you know, outside the Kremlin, of course, not, not the inside <laughs> the room with a long table, but outside the, the actual uh, building, they're showcasing the Red Square. And there's a lot of this footage comes straight from Russia. Russian side said this, Russian foreign minister said that, you know, Russian spokesman said this, and then a little bit on Ukraine and kind of, you know, Ukrainian perspective, and that's the end. And also the story of Ukraine came at the very end of each, each, each broadcast. You see like a 30 minute broadcast, the story of Ukraine typically is around minute 27. So it's, it's never the prime story. Wow. It's never the top story of the day, which I also found really interesting. So, so those things to me indicate uh, some concern with how to even tell that story. You know, if it was very easy to tell that story or they had a very deliberate line, they would just start with a story or at least push it a little bit, you know, earlier in the, in the broadcast. But it comes at the very end and we do see this kind of footage from Russia and then a little bit from Ukraine, but only the kind of footage from Ukraine that says they're willing to have peace talks, right? They're willing to come to the table. They agree to stopping violence, to creating humanitarian corridors, but not so much about anything else. And in fact, the story of refugees is completely absent. I didn't see any stories of refugees, which is two, over 2 million people are, are fleeing the country. That's a huge story. So, that, so that's, that's really interesting. It's, it's always fascinating to me how they always have this kind of good cop, bad cop thing in, in their media, outward-facing media presence. I mean, you mm -hmm. have you know, CGTN, which, as you're saying, you know, in, in its English language and other language mm -hmm. coverage has actually shown images of Ukrainian cities that have been devastated and, you know, talking mm -hmm. about refugees and, and, and the suffering produced by the war. But um, then you have the GT, the Global Times, and yeah. it's the perennial it's bad cop. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. The bad cop and the good cop. And one thing to note also that uh, in terms of RT and this influence or whether we're seeing this yeah, Arti, Artihua in, in China. I think it's, it, there's a mixed a mixed impression there from my research. I mean, on the Chinese kind of academic side, I have come across a number of articles that uh, basically praise RT for its success. You mentioned this earlier too, just this idea that RT is kind of seen as maybe potentially, you know, successful uh, in creating or combating the West, but also just having, it's quite popular, right? So in Latin America, some surveys were down where RT is more popular than CGTN or CCTV in Spanish and so forth. So, but they don't really attribute some of this popularity to just kind of this contentious style, but more so that RT is very good at localizing its content. Like they're very good at presenting stories through local correspondence. Like they're very sophisticated in how they kind of, you know, carve out their rhetoric, but also technologically sophisticated. So there's a lot of admiration. Uh, but when I was once asking this question to a CGTN a producer, she was really offended by the comparison. Yeah, she said, yeah. you know, they're troublemakers, like we, we're not them. So it was completely, you know, she just did not like that uh, parallel at all. So that was also telling in terms of the different views on this in, within China. Well, let's hope that she prevails. I mean, because, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, anything that, that just deals in, in conspiracy and activating emotion and is just so like mm -hmm. deliberately transgressive, at, like RT, of course it's going to be mm -hmm. popular. That's just human nature. I mean, and, and, and then CGTN's really, Let's, come on, let's face it. It's like the most boring news program probably in the whole world. 
It's, it's just... That's, a lot. That's not so great. Maybe we need to compare to others, you know? Okay. okay. <laughs> like, there must be some other boring ones, you know? <laughs> like, oh, maybe. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm exaggerating, but... Maria, yeah. what a fantastically fun conversation. Let me remind everybody that her new book, which is it, it, part of this Elements series from Cambridge University Press, is called Chinese Soft Power. And definitely read her new piece along with Wendy Joe called China's Russia Policy is About America. And it's just out in the Atlantic. Uh, Maria, what a just what a delight. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be back after a few years. Well, a don't leave now. You know, we still have recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support the work that we do with the podcast, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the SubChina Access Daily Newsletter. Not only do you support our podcasts, but you also get a fabulous newsletter with an in-depth roundup of all the important China-related news of the day delivered right to your inbox every evening, U.S. East Coast time. So I have one recommendation of a book I highly recommend everyone to read and one of a show that I recommend everyone to avoid. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> a pick in a pan. Yeah, so the book is uh, by Sylvia Linter and it's called Prototype Nation. I think some of you may have already heard about this book, uh, but if she hasn't been on your podcast yet, I think you absolutely invite her. She just won an award for this book oh, wow. at AAS and I read it and also taught it in my class. And it's all about China's tech innovation, you know, how it's been keeping up. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, with kind of... Um, Silicon Valley competing and creating this kind of the Shanghai movement, but also what does it actually mean? How has it transformed over the years? And she's done ethnographic work in various, uh, you know, close knit communities that are actually innovating and creating something that's uniquely Chinese, but also gets somewhat submerged under this larger gaze of Silicon Valley. So it's, it's a really fascinating account and it's well written. It's, it's, uh, really, yeah, it's just, it's really vibrant. And I think Sylvia is just a wonderful scholar and a really interesting person to talk about this um, issue. It goes right out the top of my list. That's, I mean, it, it's, it's, this is the sort of thing that I, I totally eat up. Yeah, it's, it's great. And she's also, right now, actually, in China, she managed to get out <laughs> to do some more field work, which was one of the only, I think she's the only scholar I know who's gone back uh, for six months. So she's doing a new project. I think it's on kind of digital sort of uh, construction of like happiness. She's looking at all these different happiness industries in China. So she can tell you more about her exact new project, but she's just as really innovative, um, exciting work. And she, she has the fresh gaze from China, which many of us haven't been to now for years. So I think it's wonderful to oh have Oh my God, yeah, like me. I, I'm absolutely going to have her on. And could you, uh, could I prevail on you to make an introduction? That'd be really... Of course, yeah, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah, that. Thank you. Great. Two shows that I have been waiting for for a long time uh, have now returned, so I'm going to recommend both of them. Oh wait, I'm sorry. You had a a, a, a TV show you didn't you wanted to unrecommend? Yeah. So if you don't want to get uh, if you don't want to sink into some completely nightmarish you know series, don't watch Inventing Anna. Oh really? It's terrible, huh? <laughs> On, I think it's quite terrible, but it's so addictive that you just, you know, I feel like your brain just starts to melt as you're watching this thing. Like it's not adding any value, but you know, it's hard to stop. You just get totally, you know infused in this pretty awful story. So, yeah, I don't recommend it, but uh, if you want to avoid this kind of distraction and, and uh, frustration. I'm not sure that's actually a, a very compelling. I mean, I think a lot of people will perversely want to watch it now. Just, oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. No, no, that's great. Ignore everything, ignore everything I said. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, you're the expert on soft power. So. No, that's no. fantastic. Two shows that I've been waiting for for a very long time have finally returned. I'm just like unreasonably excited about both of them. First, there's The Last Kingdom Season 5, which is on Netflix. Uh, it's based on a series by Bernard Cornwell, which I'd been reading for a while. I think I read like five or six of the books until one too many shield wall battles between Danes and Saxons uh, described in just almost the same language just made me give up. But Simon Elegant from Time Magazine in Beijing but back in the day, and I used to enthuse about these books. We, we were both reading them as kind of a guilty pleasure. But anyway, the show is just wonderful. It's set during and, and after the reign of Alfred the Great, and it follows the life of a Saxon-born but Dane-raised warrior named Uhtred. Uh, he has this kind of torn dual identity, and maybe that's why this story resonates so well with me. But um, the other show is Vikings, Valhalla, which is the sequel to the old History Channel show Vikings, which I, I totally loved. This new one is set about 100 years later. It, it starts in the very, very early 11th century, and it runs until about 1066. So don't watch it for its historical accuracy, though. Just watch it for, for the sets, the props, the action, the fight scenes, the intrigue, the drama. It's really fun. You'll, you'll totally, I mean, if you're into that kind of thing, historical fantasy and that kind of thing, you'll totally dig it. Maria, what a pleasure. What a, what a, what a total pleasure. I will not watch in, Inventing Anna. What's it called? 
I think that's what it's inventing called. Inventing art. Inventing uh, art. Okay, yeah. But your your recommendations sound much more profound <laughs> and interesting. They're not profound. <laughs> they're just they're just they're just you know like adventure for boys. It's you know it's like yeah, but at least you learn new things. Yeah, no, it's totally fun. It's totally fun. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Well, what a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.